Hello, and welcome to episode 95 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Jeffrey Krasenik about fair hiring for people with criminal records. Jeffrey Korzenik is chief investment strategist for one of the nation's largest banks. He's a regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business News, and Bloomberg TV. His insights into the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce are frequently cited in the financial and business press. His writings on economics and public policy have been published in Forbes, the Chicago Tribune, Barron's, and numerous other periodicals. He was elected to membership in the Council of Criminal Justice in 2020. Jeff is here to discuss his forthcoming book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring works for your business and the community to be published by Harper Collins leadership in April 2021. And he is also a longtime friend. Welcome to the decarceration nation podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Josh. I couldn't be more pleased to be here. Well, I always ask the same first question. It's kind of the comic book style origin question. How did you get from where you started out in life to where you were getting interested in and becoming passionate about criminal justice issues? Uh, a business and second chance hiring. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, this is a question I get quite a bit. Uh, people are surprised that I've been engaged with this. It's not just a side project. The, the book was uh, sort of a, a passion project. But this has been part of my uh, professional work, guiding investors and guiding businesses for the last six or seven years. And uh, it really started out by observing problems in the labor force. Why were people dropping out of the labor force? Why did we have low levels of participation in the labor force? And, and that took me there. But I, I think the, the real question people ask um, when, when they uh, are, are testing that uh, those grounds is uh, what had me, you know, even opened my eyes to these issues. And I always go back to a couple of points in my distant past. Uh, my dad uh, was the first in family to go to college. He did the heavy lifting, the son and grandson. He's the son of uh, immigrants. And he um, never lost touch with his roots. And although he was uh, very successful and we had sort of an upper middle class uh, upbringing, he would uh, always go visit his old neighborhood and uh, ostensibly to do errands, but really just to visit. And uh, one day, and maybe I was 10 or 12, I went with him and, and he introduced me to a shop owner. And as we walked away from his, after a conversation with his friend, he mentioned casually that um, he had spent time in prison. And I asked for what? And uh, my dad said for murder, a, a crime of passion. And then my dad said something that has always stuck with me and I'm in my late fifties, but I remember it clearly today. He said, he's done his time. And then you fast forward a bunch of decades. My kids went to school in the Chicago public school system, very, very diverse uh, high school and uh, uh, driving kids home to their own neighborhoods. It was a magnet school or parts of this uh, of the region for this high school. You saw kids who uh, were just kids, but had very different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. And you saw how easy it was to make a mistake and uh, and get off on the round uh, on the uh, on the wrong track. And then uh, fast forward another uh, couple of years, and on the suggestion of my niece, I went to a restaurant called The King's Kitchen in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where everything came together. This is a, a, a very nice restaurant uh, in the heart of uh, Charlotte, 
that specializes in not just great food, and it really is great food, but also in employing people with backgrounds of incarceration, addiction, even homelessness, and allowing them to rebuild their lives. And that was my aha moment that this could all come together and this is a potential solution to uh, our labor force problems. Yeah, it's really amazing if you read the book, how many of the people that you know are people that I know and uh, we've come into contact with over uh, the se- relatively the same period of time. Uh, you've, as you mentioned, been public, you know, speaking publicly about this and working on this for a long time. And thanks to our mutual friend, I always am glad to be able to mention him on the podcast, Tom Decker. Uh, you and I yes. have known each other for several years. And so I know how much time you've put into learning from people who are doing this kind of hiring well. Can you give people kind of the idea of all the places or, you know, a synopsis of all the places you've been kind of investigating this that both went into the work you've done speaking across the country, but also into the book? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the um aspects of my job is I speak uh, publicly on economic outlook and investment outlook um, around the country. And as you know, there's no directory of companies that offer this kind of second chances to employers. It's word of mouth. And I, uh, working for a bank and a bank that does a lot of work uh, in uh, middle market, mid-sized companies, often privately owned, my colleagues tend to know who these companies are if it's within our uh, geographic footprint. So every time I travel to a region, and I've been doing, you know, prior to the pandemic, 125 to 150 flights a year every year for, for most of the past decade. Um, so I'm in a lot of places around the country, and I would try to find these employers and meet with them and, and uh, uh, understand the, their business. So I've done this, uh, you know, I, I have employers in California, I have employers in the Midwest, in the, in the South, uh, in the Northeast. I've been to, uh, you know, Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, um, Chicago, of course, uh, Texas. But a lot of the action is in smaller cities or in uh, suburban locations of larger cities where uh, employers did not have access to a gigantic labor pool and started to take innovations and and realize that this was a very viable path of uh, offering supportive employment, getting great engaged employees, and also helping people rebuild their lives. The now, now let's get kind of to the book. The very first part of the book is a letter from you to formerly incarcerated folks. Can you talk about why you started there and what you wanted people kind of in my community, the formerly incarcerated community to know? Well, it's actually a, the forward is actually intended for the currently incarcerated, but it's, it's oh. absolutely just as much as uh, uh, for formerly incarcerated. And I, I'm kind of uh, I like the symmetry of the book. The very last paragraph of the book is also a note to people who have uh, a criminal record, whether incarcerated or not. But the note to the, the currently incarcerated is in response to the reaction I've gotten to my work from people who have uh, been incarcerated or are currently incarcerated. A lot of this started uh, when I published a column in Barron's, which is a, um, a very large uh, financial magazine. They, uh, I think their circulation is something like you know, 400,000, and it is disproportionately you know, CEOs and C-suite executives. So that was my, you know, that, w- that was the target I was trying to talk to about second chance employment. And after it got published, I started getting letters from prison. 
And the reactions were, were really incredible. There was a, a gentleman who was incarcerated in a federal institution in Colorado who said, your article hangs on the wall of our library and it gives us all hope. And then as I traveled and talked to this, I'd have people come out of the audience, tell me about either their child who was or had been incarcerated or that they themselves had been incarcerated. Um, people hugged me. Um, people asked for their picture with me. And it took me a while to sort this out. And, and I went to some of my friends who, who, who were formerly incarcerated. I said, yeah, what's going on? And they helped me understand how when you go into a facility, particularly if you're you know, young, you think your life is over. And it was really important to me that even though the main audience of this book is, is uh, business owners and business decision makers, you know, I'm trying to uh, affect change here. Um, but I thought it was really important that um, people who had lost hope, who felt that they were a burden, understood that they're not. They're really a resource, uh, and they, they should know that. And I think that, that um, if you know that there are people uh, plugging for you, if you know that you shouldn't be considered a burden, but should really be considered a potential resource, you'll make good use of your time. You'll help understand, I hope, the business perspective uh, and make you more ready for employment. Uh, you know, I have no illusions. This is a, it's a very, very tough thing uh, to come out of uh, prison or even to have a felony conviction and to have a good career and be able to, uh, you know, take care of yourself and your family. But it is possible. And I wanted people to have that message of hope. Yeah, I think maybe I, when I read, read it, I, I, I probably uh, misallocated that simply because, you know, it's often it's so rare for new books to get into prison. And so uh, do you have kind of a thought on how uh, to maybe get the book to people who are inside when it comes out or? Uh, yes. Well, it's actually a project we're working on. I'm not quite ready to announce it uh, yet, but I'm working with a nonprofit that has uh, has specialized for years on uh, sending books to prison. And they've got, as you know, as you know, there's no easy way to do this. But they have as good a mailing list as any, and they're starting to do outreach. Uh, uh, again, I've, I, I, I'm not quite ready to release all the details, but I have a philanthropist in uh, in uh, the Philadelphia area who is very generously financing, um, sending 500 books out. Um, a, a, as you know, one of the problems is that hardcover books may be rejected. Yes. And, uh, and uh, you know, although a hardcover is generally considered more prestigious, I guess, and, and uh that's what I was contracted for. I went back to my publisher, HarperCollins Leadership, and, and said, you know, I, I, uh, it's really important to me that there be no obstacles to getting this book into prison. It's not going to be the bulk of the readership. I'm not expecting that. But it's important that people um, who are incarcerated have the ability to access this. And so we converted it to a soft cover book. That's amazing and great to hear. Uh, one of the first things you say in the book uh, is the path to a more equitable society must be paved by the business community. Uh, that made me kind of go, I mean, I said that's an incredibly it's well, well-written phrase. Uh, can you explain why you think that's the case? Well, you know, ultimately um, rehabilitation in the, is uh, very dependent on employment. Um, I, I, the term I use is that employment is foundational to rebuilding your life and to um, lowering recidivism. Uh, right now, the numbers are astonishing. I, the, the, the 
Um, statistic I, I really hone in on is the number of people with felony convictions. 19 million people in the United States have felony convictions. And how can we have that many million, and millions more, of course, with, with misdemeanors, how can we have that, those, that many people um, who have uh, unnecessary and severe obstacles uh, to rebuilding their lives and, and be a just and equitable society? And uh, this obviously spills over into um, racial justice as well. Again, the book is not about these things, but it's clear to me that when you have, uh, as we do, uh, in our society, one in three black men has a felony conviction for all, you know, all the commitments we're hearing today for, for uh, diversity have got to be coupled with a strategy for um, allowing opportunities for people who are burdened with a criminal record. In a lot of ways, you know, this book is, it seems to me, uh, directed at people who own businesses and companies. Uh, you build a strong case for why people who own businesses should care about hiring justice impacted folks. Uh, and you kind of start uh, with this notion that America is facing a looming labor shortage. Could you talk about that a bit? Yes, and, and you're right. I mean, especially at the time this book was written, the only audience I expected was business owners. Uh, I really didn't think it would have such general interest. And of course, all of that changed uh, during the pandemic. Uh, you know, just to kind of put everything in time frame, the manuscript had originally been due in April. Uh, we had pushed off uh, uh, April of 2020. Um, as soon as the pandemic began and unemployment went soaring, I said, Let, let's push everything back a little bit. And uh, we had limitations of how, how far back we could push that. But uh, the manuscript was due in June. So if you think about that, um, you know, most of this book was completely written, or most of the book was written, excuse me, um, before social justice um, issue came to the forefront uh, in America. Um, but it's a, um, uh, you know, so, so that's kind of a, an important uh, factor for me. But I, I realized also that uh, there, there's a lot of issues that um, everyone should understand about this book. Uh, one of the things that I've seen is a tremendous disconnect between nonprofits in this space uh, and uh, and uh, businesses that could solve you know solve a lot of these problems. So all of that uh, you know really all of that came together uh, once the manuscript was written. But but you're right, it was written essentially with a business audience. But that doesn't mean it's it, it's topic and the information is limited. I, I like to think of this as uh, this is something that uh, obviously business owners should, should read for this labor shortage, which I'll talk about, um, but also uh, has interest for others as well. With regard to the labor shortage, uh, a truism in economics, right? There are very few things that economists agree on. You know, it's famously economists are, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, people. <laughs> but but, but the, the recognition is it's, it's, you know, it's formulaic. It's like saying two plus two equals four. Um, Long-term growth potential of any economy two things. How fast can you grow your workforce and how fast can you grow their productivity? And with regard to workforce growth, it is at least in part a matter of simple demographics, birth rates, fertility rates, uh, female labor force participation rates, things like that. And uh, my observation is that, and this is, again, no one disputes this, that if you think about those two pillars of economic, long-term economic growth, workforce growth, 
productivity growth, we're in trouble. And, and we're particularly in trouble in terms of workforce growth because we've had declining birth rates in the United States. Um, birth rates tell you sort of where you are here and now. Fertility rates is the measure that's probably more important. How many children would a woman be expected to have over her lifetime? And to just replace your population, you have to have a fertility rate of about 2.1. So mother, father, that's, that's two. And then there's an allowance for infant and early mortality. So um, we're in the United States below 1.8. And we're actually one of the better, uh, more fertile uh, countries. So if it were not for immigration, we wouldn't even be replacing our, our uh, population. So if you think about what that means for the future, that is... Um, damning you in many ways to very slow growth. And very slow growth has all sorts of problems associated with it. Very slow growth can turn into negative growth too easily. Very slow, slow growth does not seem to support the kind of institutions we want and, and uh, the kind of government we want. So a lot of the uh, protests we've seen in Europe and, and in the United States are also a reaction to sluggish growth. So we have so much at stake and the solution is to make the most of your population, you know, in other words, help people who've been marginalized, who want to work, get back into the workforce and invest in your workforce and make them more productive. So that's the path to faster growth. And, uh, and that's why businesses have to care about this. We are heading for a workforce shortage. It's going to be a workforce shortage, not only like 2018, 2019, when this was the top concern of many business uh, executives, but one that extends for decades. And the, as you just said or suggested, the, the kind of answer is missing work, uh, people who are missing from the workforce since you're not replacing it with uh, n- new human beings. And so if I understand your argument correctly, there are three major factors you say that are, are kind of playing into what we have as a missing workforce right now? And those are? Correct. Long-term unemployment, uh, the opioid epidemic, and the incarceration recidivism cycle. And all of them, of course, are, are interconnected. And you conclude and, that the last one, incarceration, represents the biggest opportunity for uh, re-entering workers. Is that correct? Yes, for two reasons. Um, one, uh, because just the size of the potential population you can you can add to your workforce, right? 19 million people with felony convictions, they're not all unemployed, but I would uh, say that most of them are underemployed. They have not had the labor mobility. Um, they've not had their uh, ability to be a resource taken uh, up seriously. Um, so it's a, it's, a size, uh, it's a size issue. And then the real key is, We've seen, I've observed, and I share in, in my book and my, in my talks, th- there's a model of success. And so the combination of size and models of success that truly work is pretty powerful. And I think you argue that the ultimate loss could be as high as $1 trillion in forsaken growth. Is, am, I, am I still with? Right. Yeah. So, it, so that's simply a calculation of, you know, how, how many people could we um, bring into the workforce? How big could we grow our workforce? Um, and I use very conservative numbers and, you know, and what does that mean in terms of economic growth? Um, and, and so, uh, you know, this was a calculation I was doing before the pandemic and, and saying, look, we're running out of labor, you know, pre, uh, pre 2020, uh, 20, um, this is how many years bringing this many in would add to our, 
uh, uh, w- would add to our uh, uh, expansion. So there are all sorts of ways of thinking about this, but um, it's big money. It's not some obscure amount. It is not um, just a tiny sector. It's all of our prosperity is uh, benefits when we can uh, have a more inclusive economy. And uh, so now I think we kind of understand why, you know, both uh, people who are invested in the economy and why companies and business owners should care. Um, But I suspect and I well, I know because I've read the rest of the book, but um, that that businesses, uh, you can't just go out and start hiring folks. What should be the expectations of a business owner in considering second chance or justice impacted hiring? Yeah, it's really important to understand that employment is not enough. It's got to be coupled with a uh, process for identifying who is ready for employment. And and that's not meant to be disparaging for people who are, say, coming out of incarceration. A lot of people uh, with that background may have had no mentorship, um, may have, uh, you know, trauma or, uh, you know, emotional management issues to deal with. So you have to get to a certain point of stability before you are truly employable. And a business owner um, may not be able to discern who is ready. And then the second process that you need for success is, again, recognizing the um, uh, the background that many people uh, who have a, are burdened with a criminal record have and, and uh, uh, th- that they need additional support or mentorship or some accommodations. A lot of these um, accommodations are not to adjust for someone because they have a criminal record, but it's because people of criminal record often came from extreme poverty. So um, issues, and, and to be sure, collateral consequences complicate this, but issues like housing, secu- uh, you know, housing security, transportation, um, all of these issues can sometimes require some um, extra support. Uh, as, as one of the business owners I quote in the book, uh, Ray Dalton says, you know, p- people with, and I paraphrase, people with criminal records are more work up front or more investment, but they're worth it. And that's been the experience. Yeah, I think in, I think at one point in the book you say to put it bluntly, there's a right and a wrong way to hire people with criminal records. Uh, you just uh, explained, I think, in a short form, some of the right way. Uh, what are some of the wrong ways that people go about it? Well, you know, there, there is a model out there, and I don't want to be too uh, uh, condemning of it, but we all know it's out there. People who are focused on an employee who is a cheap employee, you know, someone who has a very low effective wage rate. So maybe you're using the work opportunity tax credit to uh, lower their effective wage. And, and that's a model of you get what you pay for. I, I refer to it as the disposable employee model um, in the book, where um, all you're looking for is a cheap employee who's going to stick around for however they, they want to stick around. And, um, you know, I, I don't condemn it um, because at least it's an opportunity and some people will be able to build off of that. And it's better than refusing an opportunity. Uh, but more commonly, and this is something that has uh, come up time and time again when I speak around the country, I'll have business owners uh, come up to me and, and say, you know, I tried it and it didn't work. And a very common phrase uh, that I've heard is, uh, they were either my best employees or my worst employees. And I think what has happened um, uh, uh, is that uh, this becomes uh, what I call the undifferentiated model. You have the best intentions of being open to hiring, but you don't understand uh, what it takes. And so uh, you'll hire people who um, perhaps are, are largely ready emotionally uh, for employment and have the commitment 
uh, and the ones that are able to navigate all the other issues do really well and are kind of those best employees. But you'll also have some who might not be ready uh, with emotional management, have not uh, had any experience with how do you deal with uh, 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 tension with coworkers, criticism from coworkers, or um, don't know how to navigate. You know, a car breaks down and they don't have money for repair, so they just don't show. And those become your worst workers. And that undifferentiated model, you know, again, those employers have good intentions. They just know don't know what they need to know to support this type of employment. And the problem with that is, um, you know, I think I say in the book that it would seem that, you know, the, the average of best employee and worst employee is average, and that should be okay. But the practical reality, and any of your listeners who have uh, managed people know, one bad employee, one unreliable employee, um, or one problematic employee undoes the good of multiple good employees. So these employers over time, tend to drift away from uh, considering second chance uh, employment. This book, for this, the chapter or the section of the book, uh, sort of a sidebar that talks about this was really important to me because um, one of the things that I think reformers uh, don't always recognize is that empl- many, many employers have tried hiring people with records. They just haven't had a good experience. So how do you uh, tell business decision makers who've tried it and had a bad experience that, you know, it's, it's not the people, it's the model and that there is a viable model. And that's what I try to do in that section of the book. I think one of those sort of sites of resistance might also be this notion of accommodation. Uh, And you do talk about it quite a bit in the book, you know, you know, for instance, that there's lots of other ways that people provide accommodations and are having to provide accommodations now uh, outside of trying to hire formerly incarcerated uh, and uh, justice impacted people. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. When you tell when I tell an audience of employers that, uh, you know, to to do this right, you have to make accommodations. You know, I can see them at least mentally reaching for their wallets. Right. It sounds very expensive. Um, But but I try to put it into context. Uh, First of all, not all of these accommodations cost you anything. It might be uh, a room to meet uh, a parole or probation officer uh, in private. It might mean calling that local head of pro- parole and probation and saying, don't meet with people you know, during the business, uh, you know, during the shift hours, can we work around that? that th- those kind of uh, accommodations really don't cost you anything, but some do. And uh, again, uh, it's important to put that into context. Uh, think of how many companies have relocated to um, places where young, highly educated uh, workers want to live, right? So in, in uh, you know, Chicago land, for instance, you saw uh, McDonald's move its headquarters from a suburban location to uh, the, the West Loop, which is a, sort of an attractive place for young people to move. I mean, that's an enormous cost to do something like that. Um, at a smaller company level, it's putting in the, uh, you know, the, the, the foosball table or the ping pong table. But more realistically, we see um, you know, uh, parental leave benefits. That's a real cost to companies, but you do it to attract talent or in some cases uh, uh, where, where it's been mandated by law. Um, uh, you know, back in the day, offering medical insurance was uh, was not nearly as widespread as it is now. And then, of course, mandated it's for certain size uh, companies. All of these things were investments that you make to attract and retain talent. The accommodations I'm talking about are just another you know, part and parcel of that kind of uh, very important investment you make. 
I think you only mention it a few times in the book, but we've talked about it. Maybe it goes a little bit beyond uh, just the conversation that the book covers, but I think you've referred to it as safety net capitalism. Can you uh, talk about that concept a little bit yeah, more? You know, it, you know it's, it's very funny. So I, I, I'm of an age where, uh, you know, it was kind of understood, uh, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union, that, that, you know, socialism doesn't work, communism doesn't work. And here we are today with young people who, at least uh, according to surveys, say they like, like socialism or prefer socialism. Um, you know, the offset there is when all further surveyed asked what it is, they don't necessarily know. So it's kind of this, uh, you know, the, the, this amorphous concept. But I think what most people really want is uh, uh, the, this concept of safety net capitalism, uh, where um, you have the growth and economic mobility opportunities and wealth generation that uh, capitalism uh, can provide and has historically provided across uh, across most of the world. But at the same time, you realize that that, uh, you know, what economists call a creative destruction element of capitalism um, can can leave some individual harm in the wake. So this safety net capitalism is this concept of a society where it's fundamentally free, free enterprise with with, of course, some some uh, rails, uh, rails on the on the outside with regulation, but that there's also a safety net. So if you're one of those people left behind, um, that doesn't, uh, you know, that 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 is not as harmful that you have some protections. And I think that the um, employers in a uh, in an environment where uh, you have a permanent shortage of workers, a talent shortage, I think uh, a lot of these employers will come up and, and essentially are moving towards this. So when I look at the second chance employers who, who really do a great job, I, I don't think, wow, what a neat niche. I think this is a great model for our economy in a much broader sense. And I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned, you know, I, I don't know how much of this is nostalgia or how much is real, but I know like after World War II, the kind of assumption was is that anyone, if they worked hard, could get a house, a car or whatever, take care of their kids and at least be OK. You know, um, how does this kind of notion of safety net capitalism uh, juxtaposed against what I think they call the gig economy kind of uh, play? How's it going to how do you see it playing out? You know, I, I think it it, um, it 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 will work. I, it's important to understand that that kind of nineteen late nineteen forties nineteen fifties period was uh, a period where you you saw that um, it all came together, but really only in the United States in many ways. Uh, after World War II, you had the decimation of the industrial economies of Europe and of Japan. Uh, Asia didn't have uh, an industrial economy to, to uh, that degree. South America didn't have an economy to that degree. So uh, in, in a sense, the American economy had not exactly a monopoly, but a pretty good stranglehold. And that allowed for a lot of um, luxurious uh, benefits uh, th that simply aren't available uh, to that degree in a more competitive economy. That being said, I think the, um, the shift uh, that has been going on towards, you know, the, if you if you look at it as sort of capital and labor, the shift that has advantaged capital is starting to shift back towards labor. So I think that, that uh, uh, while it's not back to 1950 uh, America in, in economic terms, I think it'll move in that direction. And and even in a gig economy, I think that's viable. 
And remember, a gig economy has all sorts of other kinds of benefits, uh, you know, where you can work, flexibility of hours. Uh, you know, often these things are, you know, one spouse has a more traditional job with benefits and one is more a gig economy. You know, there, there's a lot of models that, that can work for workers and for the economy as well. So at least theoretically, we've got employers should think about this is just another form of accommodation. Another thing you think employers uh, need to do is find partners in this uh, venture to succeed. Could you talk a little bit about that? You know, sometimes uh, uh, you see these second chance employers get a lot of experience and be able to kind of do more of this on their own or start nonprofits on their own. But for people starting out, you need someone who uh, is going to help be your talent pipeline. And uh, it's interesting. Employers understand this intuitively, uh, but they don't always understand uh, how to think outside the box. So lots of employers uh, make visits to colleges or to business schools to recruit. They're creating a talent pipeline. Uh, Lots of employers will uh, offer uh, bonuses for referring an employee that you, you a prospective employee that you know if they get hired. So there is this recognition that you need pipelines, um, pipelines of talent. In the world of second chance hiring, it's it's no different. You need some vetting process to go on that that, uh, uh, that that is often best done by people who can build a real relationship with the candidate. And this might be uh, a, a reentry nonprofit. Uh, it might be a workforce development nonprofit. It can be staffing agencies, uh, uh, especially some of these specialized second chance staffing agencies that go on. And it can even be government authorities like uh, the, the uh, corrections authorities or halfway houses Everything works uh, in concept. It really boils down very often to finding the right partner that works for you. And uh, once you do that, it can be very, very effective. And what about uh, resistance from inside the workforce? How have people best overcome kind of when already existing employees uh, push back against the notion of hiring uh, justice-impacted folks? One of the reasons I think that we've seen Uh, the companies that do this tend to be privately owned and CEO owned companies because uh, in, in certain ways, those are really benevolent dictatorships. And uh, so what the CEO, this, when the CEO is the owner, uh, the CEO uh, gets an awful lot of say, and it's not, uh, you know, to be an effective leader, of course, you have to do consensus building and and all that. Uh, But but, uh, there is a reason that the best examples of this tend to be smaller companies with a, with a CEO owner or some public companies where you have a, you know, effectively a benevolent dictatorship um, where we're very strong, uh, very, very strong CEO. Uh, and um, they will face a wall of resistance. I, I had a very interesting um, situation in a city in Ohio where the owner uh, was on one of my panels and he came to me and uh, he told me how he met so much resistance from his uh, chief human resources office and uh, officer and his uh, and his legal counsel that he ended up firing them both and asked me to come in and talk to the new team. Uh, you know, that's an extreme. Usually what happens is a uh, uh, a well-meaning CEO who's interested in this kind of gets ground down and beaten down. It's actually a major motivation for me in writing the book was to give give people more ammunition to see how it can work and how it can work effectively and, and let employers that want to 
uh, want to go down this path know that they are not alone and that others have done it uh, successfully. The, the, um, the objections tend to revolve around, I know, first thing is sort of uh, physical safety. Um, uh, the, and, you know, you get to control this. You, you know, you, you can stay and should state flat out that you're not going to compromise that. This is not about compromising physical safety of employees. Um, there is often, and there is some uh, legitimacy to this fear, uh, liability concerns. Uh, there are uh, concerns of the quality of work and there are concerns over reputation. And uh, one of the things I try to lay out in the book is that every one of these concerns is something that you can and should address, but you have to be prepared for them. Uh, you know, one version of this is what I've in the past have called kind of in other contexts, the Hannibal Lecter problem. Uh, and I think you responded to it in an interesting way in the book, the, the, in terms of the safety question. Uh, you said the plural of anecdote is not data. Can you could you expound on that a little bit? I like that a lot. So, uh, yes. So, you know, we're, we're a nation of what, 330 million uh, people on any given day. A certain percentage of those 330 million are going to behave very, very badly. And so we're always going to have these stories of kind of worst case things that go on, you know, your Hannibal Lecter um, example. And uh, I, I spend a lot of time in the book, really a, uh, a chapter talking about um, who really has been touched by the criminal justice system and what are their characteristics. And, I, you know, I think uh, those of us who care about criminal justice reform do no favors in trying to present everyone as a, you know, nonviolent, you know, uh, possession of uh, a joint of marijuana or something. No, look, the reality is that the plurality of people um, who are incarcerated have a uh, conviction for a violent crime. And then the next biggest sort of chunk is um, property crimes. Uh, let's not get around that reality. But if you do it right, I think you can position this and help people understand that, um, People, particularly young people, uh, make stupid mistakes um, and that it doesn't make them uh, irredeemable. And even, uh, I, you know, I feel very strongly about this. Uh, people who've been convicted of a violent crime are not necessarily violent people. It's a moment in time. It's wrong place, wrong time. It's, uh, you know, hormones of youth. Um, uh, it's a, a trauma in life. And uh, it, it doesn't relieve a responsibility, the responsibility of an employer to f from um, being sure he is getting people who are ready for employment. Um, but it should open them up to um, how people who, who have criminal records and even records for violent crimes may be completely viable, great employees, great colleagues and great friends. And since, you know, I, mean, I think this leads right into the next question, you spend quite a bit of time talking about kind of employer concerns with liability suits. Do you want to kind of just address kind of? Yeah, you know, this is something that that um, I feel the criminal justice community has not sufficiently focused on. Um, there is a real feel, fear among employers um, that uh, they will have negligent hiring liability. They can be sued. They have extra liability, can be sued if something happens involving an employee who has a criminal record that puts them at greater risk than uh, uh, if that employee had not had a criminal record. And the traditional pushback I've received 
from uh, people in justice reform is this hardly ever happens. It's very rare to have negligent hiring liability uh, lawsuits, uh, successful ones on this basis. You know, and my reply is always the same. Um, I have fire insurance on my house. If I have uh, an asset of great value, I need to protect um, even if it's a rare event, if it's a catastrophic event, I, I, I want to protect against it. And when you understand that many of the businesses that are willing to do this are family-owned businesses, uh, sometimes multi-generational, if someone puts that at risk, uh, you know, it's not like a gigantic uh, mega corporation where you flip it over to the legal department and, the, and a PR department to handle. This is something that is going to involve the business owner, his family, puts their um, livelihood at risk, their legacy at risk. So it's very important that uh, justice reforms take this uh, take this into account and recognize that um, it's not about the numbers; it's about the risk. Uh, it's about the risk. And just as um, it's very rare for a house to catch on fire and burn down, if it happens to you, it's generally catastrophic. You want to protect against it. That's how employers view negligent hiring liability. So how do we? How can they better protect against that question? I guess. Well, you know, obviously having a thorough process um, for doing this and showing that you have, uh, you know, vetted employees and that you have proof of that, that you have, uh, have done this. So you can accept and have someone who has a criminal record um, on your payroll, um, but they, you probably do have to be uh, aware of special risks. You know, you don't want someone who um, has a long and recent history of DWIs driving a school bus, right? I mean, those, those are common sense, and there's also usually regulatory barriers for that. Uh, but in the more general sense, you have to show that you have a process uh, for examining this, that it's a robust process. Um, and that doesn't mean saying no to everyone. It just means that you've examined the, the risks and made a good uh, decision. And this is where I think policy can help uh, quite a bit as well. There are policy solutions to this beyond uh, things that the, the employer can do on their own. Uh, yeah, and you do, I, I know it's not a focus of the book, but you do dedicate a chapter to kind of policy. And uh, so what could legislatures do to kind of be helpful? Well, I think broader use of expungement, right? If you're, if you're expunging uh, a record, then you cannot hold an employer responsible for something that was committed in the past because it's, it's invisible to them in, in the legal sense. Uh, so uh, expungement is important. Expansion of uh, uh, proof of rehabilitation. So these various certificates of rehabilitation, uh, many states have them. It's not always an easy thing for uh, someone who's been justice involved to get. Often it's costly or, or sometimes barriers are too great to those. Um, you know, those, those are ideas. Texas has done the, these things that um, essentially um, alleviate employers of negligent hiring liability in certain instances for, for hiring someone with a criminal record, you know, I think that's really productive legislation um, and, and helps employers say, oh, this isn't an issue. I can get I, I, I can I can work through this. And I know we said earlier that the plural of anecdote is anecdote is not data, uh, but I think it would be helpful since you've done so much kind of going around the country and talking and seeing companies that are doing good jobs in, in this area. Uh, could you give us a couple of the stories that stand out to you of companies who've made the shift to hiring folks uh, with criminal records who might kind of immediately give business owners some kind of social proof and hope that th making this move could not only be possible, but really beneficial for them? 
Yeah, I have to say I was very fortunate in that uh, my uh, if my very first contact was with the King's Kitchen, my second contact was with Nehemiah Manufacturing in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, Dan Meyer and his team, Dan's the CEO and, and uh, co-founder of the, co- of the company, um, created this uh, consumer goods, uh, consumer products manufacturing company with a social purpose, kind of give back to the community, be based in an area of the city that needed employment. But they weren't specifically looking at uh, people with criminal records until the nonprofit, uh, I believe it was a nonprofit, maybe it was a church um, that came to them and asked them to to start considering um, people with felony convictions. And interestingly, it didn't work. And uh, they found they were not reliable employees. And you had that um, undistinguished uh, uh, model where, where, you know, some were good, some didn't work, and that's not, not a viable talent pipeline. Um, but they really um, uh, started changing their process, partnering with nonprofits, laying out expectations for what the nonprofits should be sending them. They also use staffing agencies to test people out, which gives them a a little bit more flexibility in in managing through this process. But the big thing that they do is uh, is, uh, their accommodations. And it starts with uh, having, uh, Dan Meyer, when, when we first met, told me, I don't have HR professionals, I have social workers. And I laughed and I thought, you know, okay, that's what you're calling your HR team. And no, he has actual social workers that help people with records navigate through all the various issues. And it starts often with, you know, if you have outstanding debts and there are others that do this as well um, so that you don't have uh, past financial burdens uh, disrupting your your uh, your ability to rebuild your life, and they'll even go and, and get legal help for for uh, for them and renegotiate settlements and all, all sorts of things. Um, they uh, you know they, they'll work on uh, transportation issues. They cited their facility at the in, you know near intersections of, of uh, bus routes, so that's uh, less of an issue. They have a subsidiary that helps uh, build affordable housing. They have a gym and also subsidized gym memberships. I mean, it's really an incredible story, um, both for the kind of accommodations, but also very much so for their bottom line. Um, Dan's a Wharton guy, and so he's a numbers guy. And he, um, uh, you know, he early on shared with me that the lower turnover rate and higher productivity from having engaged and loyal employees added about 5% a year to his cash flow, which is a huge number in a mature industry like that. And, and uh, you know, he tends to reinvest it uh, back. But this concept of having specialized support that understands the needs of individuals who come from um, backgrounds, yes, just as involved backgrounds, but just as meaningfully um, backgrounds that involve some real challenges and often the challenges of, of, of poverty. And, uh, you know, uh, there's all sorts of uh, variations on this uh, that I've seen, but having a life coach uh, seems to be a big, uh, a big plus. Uh, what, what has been um, fun for me is to see that it really tends to change the whole company. Uh, you know, these companies that do this become purpose-driven, uh, purpose-driven companies uh, as well. But, you, you know, you'll see folks, uh, another company in Ohio um, makes everyone open a bank account and actually has to sign that they will be notified if the bank accounts are overdrawn and there can be actions, uh, including termination for multiple um, overdrafts of accounts because one of the keys to having a sustainable 
uh, uh, rebuilding your life and having a sustainable career is being prudent with your money. And uh, so, you know, these are things that are, are um, you know, I, I don't think they're patronizing. It's just a recognition of people don't have, in many cases, the backgrounds that have uh, that have set them up for success. And so employers who understand success very well are well positioned to to provide those structures. Uh you know, uh, you talk a little bit toward the end of the book about uh, what people on my end of the business call in-reach. Uh, you know, I've said for many years that I think departments of corrections should prefer or not, you know, at least prefer contracting only with co- companies who train incarcerated people and hire formerly incarcerated people in a sense that they have, you know, an investment in the in, in their you know, in the profit. Uh you know what? What's your kind of take on starting? You know, companies starting training before people uh, leave incarceration. There are some great examples of this. Um, you know, first on a coaching side, uh, there, there's a nonprofit in Minnesota called the Redemption Project that gets employers involved, and they start being co- doing coaching and uh, participating in the programming uh, roughly six months before release. So it's a chance for employers to build a relationship of trust with future employees and to acclimate those future potential employees to company culture, expectations. Uh, and I, I really think that building that relationship of trust is, is, is critical to allowing you to navigate some of the post-release issues that, uh, that come up. But I, I also um, focus on a, a company. I actually wrote a whole chapter. This is my case study uh, about a company called JBM Packaging. And uh, they're in Ohio. Ohio, Ohio, and Michigan are kind of hotbeds of activity. It's you know these kinds of companies are present elsewhere, but you've got some critical mass that's developed, and we're business owners who are second chance employers teaching other business owners, and so you, you get real pockets of excellence. But JBM Packaging uh, was inspired in part by the uh, Nehemiah experience. Uh, they were referred; the CEO was referred by uh, uh, his church uh, to, to visit Nehemiah, and they started. Uh, sending ultimately sending not only their executive team over to observe Nehemiah, but they were sending over uh, formerly incarcerated employees to get coaching from well-established formerly incarcerated employees at Nehemiah. Um, so JBM packaging a second generation, you know, family business uh, that had a you know a real challenge with labor, and ultimately, and and I go into great detail, of course, uh, in the book about this, and it's a, it's a real tribute to the leadership there that they stuck with it because it didn't always work at first, but um, they started working with uh, some local prisons uh, to be their talent pipeline. And uh, one of those prisons um, was doing, you know, uh, the, the sort of kind of questionable stuff you see of um, prisons doing printing for the state at very low, low, uh, you know, low wages, but it also allowed them to see, Oh, here's a facility that has, ventilation, electricity, and is set up for modern manufacturing. And so they ended up uh, donating a, uh, a printing press uh, to the facility, not to do prison labor, but to do training. And they worked with the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction to have a former employee, an incarcerated former employee of theirs, transferred to this facility so he could be a trainer. And they actually pay a stipend to their students, um, anything manufactured as a part of the, uh, the the training process is simply recycled. It's not sold. You know, they're, they're really trying to be very careful and make sure that they are doing this uh, to the highest ethical standards. And it's created a pipeline 
of people who are trained on their machineries, uh, on their machinery, and um, it has solved their labor problem. Uh, now, more than twenty percent of their uh, workforce is second. Ch- they call it fair chance, but second chance, um, and uh, th- they've uh, really helped people in a huge way while while also helping their business. Um, I think that's a great model. I'm seeing more of this. I do speak to, uh, I have some lines of communication to some uh, commissioners of corrections around the country. And I I think there's a much broader understanding of how programs like this or work release can be incredibly beneficial and lower recidivism and more importantly, uh, or or in, in, uh, in tandem, help people rebuild their lives. You also uh, briefly talk about the role that government can play in hiring. I know I was excited to hear uh, Speaker Schumer talk the other day about something I've actually uh, suggested for a long time, which is that maybe there should be some kind of government cadre that does uh, infrastructure and environmental remediation projects and did hire uh, formerly incarcerated people. Do you have any ideas about what role government could play in hiring folks? Yeah, no, I think government has a big role uh, to play in this and is one that has not been fully, uh, fully exploited. Uh, in Cook County, for instance, which is the county that uh, includes Chicago, there is a procurement or- ordinance that gives a pricing advantage to companies that um, have a certain percentage of their workforce comprised of people with criminal records or addicts or veterans. Uh, you know, that's one way to incent the private sector. But we should also remember that the public sector is a significant employer and should be um, taking part in this. And well, again, in Chicago, the Chicago Transit Authority has a uh, second chance program. They put about a thousand people through it. It's a one year internship uh, and uh, uh, several hundred, I think it's about three or 400 have actually been hired uh, out of this program. I, I think every city and state of size in the, in the country should be considering programs like this and, and leading the way. Uh, probably uh, one of the biggest challenges we face, and we talked about a little bit before, is confronting what has been called kind of the Willie Horton politics of this whole thing. Uh, do you have any ideas for what we can do to change the larger narrative or just, just the hiring itself? Is that going to be what ultimately breaks things down? I, I think ultimately it, it is a um, it, it's going to take the hiring and uh, more interaction, successful, pleasant, positive interaction with with people with records. And we see this in employers that um, introduce second chance hiring. There was uh, often a lot of resistance, but then as they get to know the people as people, um, suddenly it changes the view. Uh, there are uh, there is a real danger, and, and I think that we have to be very careful in policies to understand that public safety um, can't be compromised here, or you're going to have that you know that Willie Horton uh, moment, and it's difficult, and it's it's uh, often kind of cold hearted. You know, if you see bail reform, um, often uh, does uh, there's some evidence that that uh, going to ca- eliminating cash bail can increase. Um, some crime in the short term, but in the long term, it actually decreases it because you haven't interrupted people's employment and you've broken these cycles. So um, really leading a lot in terms of public, the public face of reform, stressing that this is also public safety. Um, I, I, you know, I've seen, I think it was Brian Hooks of Stand Together had a video where he said criminal justice reform has often been um, oversimplified to either tough on crime or soft on crime. And that's the wrong that's the wrong way of looking at it. You can be um, what what you really want to be is in favor of public safety and in favor of people 
being able to achieve their potential. And those are not things that are that you have to uh, have to compromise. They really go hand in hand. This year, I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Obviously, we're talking about your book, so that's one of them. But do you have any other favorites? You know, on my reading list, I've been, as you can imagine, pretty focused. Um, I did add Halfway Home. Um, I think it is interesting. Talks about collateral consequences quite a bit. I'm a big, uh, big That's fan. Ruben, uh, Jonathan Miller's book. Yes, yes. Just came out uh, uh, this month, I believe. He might. Uh, I, I, I can't promise this 100%. Well, actually, I can. He's going to be on pretty soon to talk about it. Oh, well, I think that's a that's a great point. Some of your other, I, I I'm, I'm going to confess, Josh, that um, uh, Decarceration Nation podcast has been a resource for me and uh, helping me find uh, some people I should know about, and and uh, it's been just I think it's a essential resource for anyone who cares about this uh, issue. So, uh, uh, Natapoff's book on punishment without crime about the misdemeanor system, the horror show that's our misdemeanor system. John Pfaff's book, John Foreman Jr.'s book. I, I those are all. Uh, books that I think are important reading uh, in terms of how did we get to this, you know, this, this system. Um, I, I will steal something. You know, I don't want to give away the whole book, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I do, uh, you know, in terms of uh, understanding the criminal justice system and you, you really have to break people away from thinking, gee, you know, we, a lot of people were taught if you have a criminal arrest, you know, bad people go to jail, bad people go to prison. A criminal is a bad person. And you kind of have to break that and, and I'm a great believer in this aphorism called Hansen's Razor, which says, "Never attribute to malice that which can be adequately explained by stupidity." We don't have, you know, an intentionally evil criminal justice system. We just have a really stupid one. And when you start <laughs> with, you know, with, with uh, you know, punishment without crime, I think that becomes very, very apparent. And uh, it's time to have a smart system that, yes, protects public safety, but also gives us the ability to um, have people um, live beyond their worst moments to recover from their mistakes and be contributing members of society. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? Josh, I don't think you missed anything um, uh, <laughs> here. I've been living and breathing this book on on uh, uh, on this. I I, I, uh, I I think you got the key points. Um, obviously, I, I'm hoping that uh, this will interest your listeners. And my real hope, uh, though, is that this will be a book that um, helps make real change, helps employers solve their labor problems and find talent and helps uh, people live lives of contribution and meaning. And, uh, you know, if you do that, we're going to have a more just society, safer communities, stronger families. There's so much to win and so little to lose by giving this a whirl. So when can people get untapped talent and where uh, can people find it and you? So it is um, uh, the easiest uh, starting point is uh, jeffkorzenik.com, J-E-F-F-K-O-R-Z-E-N-I-K.com. I'm the only Jeff Korzenik on the planet. People who (laughs) are on LinkedIn can, uh, you know, are free to um, uh, uh, send me an invitation or follow me on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. Information on the book is on jeffkorzenik.com. It is available for sale today. Um, but will be released April 13th. I will also say that if people believe in this mission, 
um, and intend to buy the book, I would ask that they consider um, buying it and purchasing it uh, pre-release. There are links on the uh, on the website, or just go to you know Amazon, order through in the, you know indie books if you want to support independent bookstores or Barnes and Nobles, a- any of the usual uh, suspects. When you buy a book uh, before its release, it's a signal to uh, publishers and to reviewers that this is a book that's going to interest people, and that helps spread the word. And that's uh, that's what this is really about. This is uh, this is I'm a man on a mission. The book is the vehicle. And um, I appreciate anyone uh, having an interest in it. Well, I, for one, have been watching you work so hard on this over over the years, uh, not just the book, but going around and trying to lift up the idea of, of hiring folks who have uh, come into contact with the criminal justice system. And as a formerly incarcerated person, I just want to thank you for all that hard work and just uh, thank you again for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And I have to tell you, uh, meeting you, other people who have been incarcerated and all the people I've come into contact uh, with has enriched my life and uh, enriched my friendships in ways I would never have dreamed possible. So uh, I'm the grateful one out there for sure. Well, we'll have to agree to both be grateful. And uh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks again. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Josh. And now my take. Jeffrey said the path to a more equitable society must be paved by the business community, and this makes some sense to me. In my work in Michigan, for instance, I have seen the business community move the needle farther than most anyone else could with the legislature, and many of us make up our minds about how we see the world, either at home with our families or through work. But this is not just on businesses. What we also need is lots of normal, everyday people who understand that mass incarceration, buttressed by fear tactics and sensationalized coverage, do not serve our communities. We need these people telling newspapers they oppose tabloid stories. We need them telling prosecutors that convictions are not the best standard for community well-being. We need them telling politicians that our criminal punishment our criminal punishment system as currently constructed does not serve anyone's interests. Like with every single area, power starts with organizing and every single one of us have to be invested every day and in every way in changing the narrative and bringing people together. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment on decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Espo for helping with the transcripts and Instagram and Facebook images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.